0: Well thank you for tuning in to us today. It's really great that we are still able to gather around God's word even though it is remotely and especially if you're new to Liverpool you're looking for a church family to settle in or you're thinking about the Christian faith this is all new to you a special welcome and we'd love to get to know you personally and there's ways to do that that Josh will tell us about later on. We're looking at the book of Daniel at the moment in a series called Mad World and we thought it would be a good series to do given everything that's going on around us at the moment. And so it would be really helpful if you'd be able to pick up a Bible or switch one on on your phone. You may also need a moment just if you've got little kids with you to pass them snacks or jigsaws or Lego and um, you can do that now. And we're in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's after Ezekiel in the Bible, in the first bit of the Bible, the Old Testament. And we're looking at the first half of chapter 2 today. But before we get into Daniel, which as I said, in the Old Testament, let's skip forward a couple of thousand of years from him and think about really the person we're most interested in here at Christchurch, the person Jesus himself. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus, you will know that he died. On a cross and my question for you is when Jesus died on the cross no you don't think this is an irreverent question when Jesus died on the cross was that clever or stupid was that a wise or foolish thing to do because there are many people who think it was stupid people are unmoved by the Christian message that Jesus died to take the punishment for what we did wrong They say, well, never asked him to do that. I didn't need him to do that for me. Plus, look at all the things he was able to do. Leading people and healing them and helping them. Couldn't he just have healed and helped people for his whole life? Think how many people he would have helped. Couldn't he have led people against the oppressive forces that were against them? We would have all loved him for that. So from some people's point of view, Jesus humbling himself, lowering himself to death on a cross, taking on the weight of other people's wrong, that's the stupidest thing he could have done. For musical theatre fans amongst you, that's actually the plot of Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical, if you've ever seen it. Lots of people thinking Jesus is stupid to go to his death. But the Bible says this great little phrase that the foolishness of God is wiser than people's wisdom. That is to say, Jesus lowering himself to death looks foolish, but according to what God values, it's the best thing that anyone could have done. And that's wiser than any wisdom people could have thought of because it led to people God loves being rescued and reconciled to him. So Jesus lowering himself, Jesus who could have done anything, uh, lowering himself, bearing the weight of other people's sin, letting God, his father, be glorified. Well, if God is real, that is true wisdom. That is the cleverest thing he could have done. As I said, this talk series is called Mad World because that's where we live now and that's where Daniel, who this book is about, lived. Everything we thought was steady and safe and that wouldn't change six months ago has changed and turned out not to be steady at all. And if you trust Jesus, I don't want you and you shouldn't want just to survive living in a mad world, but to actually in this mad world, be able to stand up, do good, be brave, be wise. And so we're following the book of Daniel. In the first half, we get the stories of some people who lived through their world going totally mad, but because they knew God, they navigated that wisely. And in the second half of the book, um, you get uh, God's huge picture of history saying to us, many times the world will go mad, but God is still in charge and you can trust him. And last week, Daniel and his friends were transported from their home to Babylon, this evil empire, to be indoctrinated by the king. They took their stand and through that, they brought blessing to the place where God had put them. In Daniel 1, it all seemed to work quite nicely. But as happens in this book, the situation for Daniel and his friends is about to get a lot more threatening and extreme. And it looks stupid what they do. They bear the weight of the sinful world around them. They bear the cost of that on themselves. But if God is real and is really ruling, that, Daniel says, is the wise thing to do. So, first thing we see is that the world is full of mad men and liars. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who has conquered Judah and brought Daniel and his people to live in Babylon. And one night he has a dream, and the dream troubles him. So he calls his wise men, his astrologers, the sort of mysticky people who hung around his court, his magicians. He calls them and says, tell me what the dream means. Nope. That's not actually what he does. He says, tell me what the dream was. Tell me what I dreamed. And if you don't tell me what the dream was, accurately, I will have you cut up into little pieces and have your houses torn on. So you'll be dead and your families will be destitute. Now, I think it's fair to say these are not the choices and actions of a rational, stable person. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, he's got all the self-regard of, I don't know, Mussolini, who loved people adoring him and also all the violence and malignance of Stalin or Hitler. He says, do something impossible or I will kill you and your family. Why? Does he make that strange request? Well, we find out in the passage. He says, if you're not able to do it, if I tell you the dream and you go off and then come back and tell me the meaning, I'll know you're all plotting against me together to get rid of me. So Nebuchadnezzar has this charming combination, megalomania, worshipping himself, and paranoia, thinking everybody is out to get him. Now, the astrologers and magicians, they wriggle about on the hook for a while. They say, come on, Nebuchadnezzar, they try this twice. Just tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it for you. Nezzar is having none of it. Because while he is crazy and self-obsessed and paranoid, about this he's right, isn't he? They make their living by saying they interpret things, that they're mystical, that they know the future that they do magic. So he's actually right in saying, well, if that's true about you, you should be able to tell me my dream. The astrologers here look a little bit like the fortune teller that you open the door on and they say, oh, I didn't realise you were coming. Not much cop at your job then. Now, I don't think any of us watching live in as extreme situations as that. Although we are putting this online, so who knows? I would imagine living in North Korea would be very much like this. Everybody dancing to the tune of a slightly unhinged and paranoid ruler. But one of the reasons the world we live in, we experience as a mad world, is because people with power use it badly. And generally, the more absolute and beyond question someone's power is the worse they tend to use it. And the people who are using power badly are disliked. So they tend to be paranoid about other people trying to pull them down, often because they're right. People do hate them because they're using their power badly. But because their power is so strong, the people around them can't afford to be called out. So we all go into this elaborate system of managing the powerful person and the strange things that they ask. I was reading recently a book called The Mirror and the Light, a novel about Henry VIII. And he was a ruler a bit like this, totally obsessed with himself, absolute power, and totally paranoid. And the novel's basically about how all these powerful, strong men around him have to do this sort of dance to make sure he doesn't get cross. But we probably don't need examples from literature about this because workplace politics, although often not as extreme, they're often basically this, aren't they? I'm sure no one here has a boss whose paranoia could lead them to actually dying. But I'm sure some of us have lived in the madness of a world where everyone's sort of being tortured by the person in power being irrational and making impossible demands and punishing everybody else for not being able to meet them. And the atmosphere around that is that everybody's driven by fear of that powerful person. So the people around them lie about their abilities. They cooperate with this crazy system invented by this power-hungry person. And the more lies there are, the more chance there is of the whole mess collapsing and unfolding. Sure, we've all been in situations like that. And again, I'm always getting told off by for uh, being political in sermons, but it doesn't feel unlike where we are as a country at the moment, where people have made big mistakes, and they're paranoid that that's going to be visited on them, and so they keep making more and more poor decisions to protect their own power. And Christians, like Daniel and his friends. We don't get a free pass from all of that. We don't get to say, well, I'm a Christian, so um, I don't have to be affected by my paranoid boss or my leaders making poor decisions. We are doing this type of gathering of church at the moment because of leaders making decisions who, I'll be honest, I don't particularly trust. We're caught up in it. Daniel and his friends, they haven't done anything to create this problem with Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the only thing he knows about them is that they've been a real blessing. But they're caught up in it. They're one of the group that's going to get chopped into little pieces. They weren't part of the group wheedling about the king, saying they could do things they couldn't. But it's still there. Ariok the guard, comes to collect, to execute them. Now again, no one in our church, as far as I know, is getting executed for their faith. But plenty of us have been in the position where poor, paranoid leadership, surrounded by dishonest, self-serving people, create a mess that then falls down on your head. Even though you were just minding your own business, trying to get on with living the Christian life. And that's the call of this book of Daniel, is to not see that the world is that type of mess and withdraw from it. Neither do we see the world as that type of mess and compromise with it. But we live in that world that is a mess distinctively as Christians. And what we discover in Daniel 2, and the Bible says this throughout, is the normal experience of Christians who are really involved in the world and really distinctive in the world, is that unjustly the weight of other people's poor practice falls on them. That's what happened to Daniel, isn't it? He, he wasn't one of the astrologers going around the king saying, yes, of course, we can interpret your dream. But he's still there with the threat of being cut into little pieces. And if you read the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, it basically says, as a Christian in the world, you should more or less expect that to be the case. Sinful systems are like a weight. And the weight falls somewhere. And it often falls on the godly person committed to standing out in the system. There are people watching this, Christians, who've experienced that this week. Um, There was a friend of mine who worked for a little while for a major fast food chain, just as a sort of fill-in job while they were working out what to do with their lives. And um, they quickly became respected in that workplace because they turned up on time, they tried to do their job well um, and in fact became the person that the manager phoned in the middle tonight to say the alarm is going off or the, the, the place is flooding. They were never paid anymore for being in that position but the manager didn't want to do those uh, scabby jobs and this person stood out as the weight of the person, the weight that would fall on because they were good and reliable and godly. And if that's you at this moment, I can't lift the weight from you, but I can say don't think you're getting it wrong if this is happening. It's often the way. Before we move on, I just want to say you may be someone who has power over other people at your disposal. You're a boss, or a parent, or a senior person, or you own your own business. If you're driving force in life, like Nebuchadnezzar, is protect your position, it's probable you're overly obsessed with yourself. You're probably paranoid of other people, rather than helping them thrive. You're probably making irrational and impossible demands of people. And I just want to say, listen, in this story, you want to be Daniel, not Nebuchadnezzar. So look at yourself carefully. And if you see that, well, change your ways. Madmen and liars create a messy, dangerous world, and the weight of the mess they make falls on Daniel, the people of God trying to live faithfully. Here's the second thing we see in the passage. I love the little phrase it uses about Daniel when all of this um, happens uh, and the man comes to kill him. Daniel speaks to uh, this soldier, presumably wielding a large sword, uh, it's going to cut everybody to pieces, um, and speaks to him with wisdom and tact. I would suggest a lot of both of those were required. Look, he asks a good question. Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? It's gentle but firm. Interesting, we're often not like that with wisdom and tact. When we're dealing with someone like this, we wait until the person is really driving us mad and then we explode or resign or walk off. Daniel has learned to answer with wisdom and tact or clarity and understanding, you might say. Then despite being labelled as wise throughout this story, he does something that seems incredibly rash and crazy. He goes straight into the king and volunteers to interpret the dream. Basically, the only option now, isn't it, for someone to interpret the dream, but Daniel gets himself into the firing line. And while we've been told God has gifted Daniel in that way, it's not clear to me that Daniel knew that as as yet, but he didn't wait till he could interpret it. He just put himself in the firing line. Next step, <laughs> he organises an emergency prayer meeting. He gets the other three guys round and says, the three of you had better get on your knees and pray for God's mercy here. Uh, and mercy it will be because this is our last chance not to get killed. Now in these choices, Daniel is a model of how to live in this mad world created by the power of sinful people when the weight of their bad decisions fall on you when you're only trying to do the right thing. If you have a map, you can give clear advice about where we should go. If like Daniel you know God is in charge you know there are things in place that don't change that God is real and he is control that enables you to respond carefully and respectfully even when it's someone else's sin is falling on your head that belief in God's rule is what will enable you to answer with wisdom intact with clarity and with understanding when the chaos is unfolding because of the sin of others, we want to seek from God and learn to be the person who says clear, honest, calm things that bring sense to crazy situations. But the root of that is really believing that God is in charge and he's got this. You know, if you don't really believe that, of course you're going to react to being treated unfairly at landing on you in the chaos that ensues, with anger and without clarity and without tact. We need to ask God that we can become like this. And that will not happen if the thing that matters to me is to protect my own reputation with the person in power. No, I need to only care about what God thinks and know that he rules. And if you're like Daniel, rooted in that truth about God, you can become that person. You can respond gently. The second thing Daniel does is he uh, realises the wise thing, even though it looks crazy, the wise thing to do is to believe and act accordingly that God will come through for you. We don't obey God because he will always definitely do what we expect, that he will always rescue us. But even if he doesn't, We aren't going to act against him. It's interesting, that's what Daniel's friends say in chapter 3 when they're threatened. They say, we think our God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not doing something evil. And Daniel's the same here. He says, if that's true about God, it's right to step up. It's right for me to put myself in a difficult situation for the sake of others. And for God is going to have to come through for me here. He really believes and acts as if God is ruling and living and active. And no matter how godless the environment you are in, God is there. He is working. He is ruling. You should behave accordingly. Usually that will mean stepping up to do something difficult for the sake of others. But that's the right thing to do. And we ask God to give us the help that we need. We, we believe that he will help us. A student uh, told me once about... Uh, I don't know if this still happens anymore. Students, I guess, won't even be able to socialise. Um, but uh, on the, in the flat they were in, they put a note on their door and basically said, leave anything, write anything here. You want me to pray for you. They were Christian. And people did write things, actually, and she prayed for them, not seeing any miracles happen. And uh, one of her corridor mates wrote on it to say, "Pray, I'm praying for you to get a life. But later on, years later, someone said to her, you standing up for your faith like that, it really made an impact on me. It was the first time actually I really thought the Christian faith was worth investigating. Now, do you see, chaotic world of Freshers' Week, the best thing to do is to step in and do the hard thing believing that God is real and will do something through it. There are Christians who endlessly want to debate whether miracles still happen today. And I don't think Daniel is promising that to us. The thing I'd say that's true for him and true for other miracles that I hear about is that credible stories where miracles happen tend to be where Christians are doing this. Where they've stepped up to do something that seems impossible—to serve others, or to spread the gospel, or to live for Jesus. That's the second thing he does. He believes that God is active. Third thing, he has his emergency prayer meeting as well. His first response after calming the crisis is to say, "Team, we have got to pray." And I love the way he says it. He says, "We need God's mercy." We need God's kindness. None of this is sort of like, well, God, we've done this. You'd better come through for us. He's like, all we can hope for God is his undeserved kindness. Now, how much of that do I do or do you do? When the weight of other people's sin lands on you, do you call your friends to pray? I just think... We're really slow to do that. And, you know, sometimes we do form little prayer groups, but really they should be renamed the moaning clubs of the church. What we do is get together and moan about all the ways other people's sinners affecting us and then maybe say a few quick prayers and go home. Now Daniel's conviction is, if we're going to do this, I need God's mercy so you guys are going to have to man the prayer pumps. We're going to get out of this three responses. He responds gently, he believes that God is active, he gets his people to pray. And what's the third thing that we see? The third thing we see is this, God and mysteries. As quickly as that, the meaning of the dream is revealed to Daniel, both the dream and the meaning. Problem solved, isn't it? Well, sort of. Now that he knows the meaning of the dream, which we will read about next week, it's not the type of message I would be wanting to deliver personally to a deranged despot like Nebuchadnezzar. But anyway, here, before we get to the meaning of the dream, which is really the thing we want to know, there's quite a long pause in the story before Daniel rushes in to deliver the news to the king and save everyone's life. And the pause in the story happens so that twice... God can get the credit. Firstly, in 20 to 23, there's a pause in the story so Daniel can sort of sing this hymn of praise to God. He sings this truth that God is the God who decides who will be in charge. If anyone has knowledge and understanding, including me, it's because God gives it. It's the Lord who knows what is in the darkness and it is the Lord who knows the light, and then after that great hymn of worship to God, he says, Thank you, God, for sharing some of that with me. Essentially, the story of Daniel is this it really doesn't matter who you see ruling the world, or the country, or the school, or the hospital, or the university, that person has only got borrowed power from the God who rules everything, who sees everything, who knows everything and can reveal deeper and more hidden things than even all those people in power could ever imagine. And sometimes we, like Daniel, need to stop in the drama of the chaotic world unfolding and just reflect back to God that that's true of him. I've been frustrated this week with decisions that our government has made. But I have to stop and reflect on the fact that none of that is unknown to God, that all of those people's power is borrowed from him, and that he continues to see through the darkness and bring light. And in the midst of the chaos you're facing, whatever it is, Pausing to know that and actually say it to God might be something that helps. But more than that, Daniel doesn't just know it. He doesn't just sort of say, yeah, yeah, God's in charge. He actually stops to worship God for being like that. He takes time to, to adore God for his power and knowledge and help he gives. And that is a right and good and helpful thing to do. You see, Daniel is able to respond to this situation with calm and with help and with grace, not simply because, oh yeah, he knew some truths about God, that God's in charge, but that he worships God. His response to getting help is to sit down and reflect on God's character and then actually express that out to God. And you know, for lots of us, I think, worshipping in that way It's sort of underrated. We know it's right to worship God and it would be right to worship God even if he'd never done anything for us because he owns wisdom and he changes times and seasons and he sees through darkness to light. If we only saw God clearly for who he is, even if he'd never done anything for us, expressions of worship would just come pouring out of us. Expressing worship is right just because of who God is, but it's also good for me. It's good for us. It's not a clever trick that he has worked out the dream. It's an expression of the amazing truth of God. We know who Daniel worships and knows and loves and appreciates. And so he takes time to actually worship. Now, who knows when we'll be back doing sung worship together. But when we are, I fear that for lots of people in our church, sung worship is just a sort of prelude we've got to get to before a Bible talk and then a chat and a coffee at the end. And I want to say to that, it's really right to sing praise to God, to sing praise to God wholeheartedly because of who he is. But more than that, it's good for you the foundation of the character of God, not just known as facts, yeah, God's in charge, but actually that it's moved me to worship him, having that is what will help me navigate a mad world. It will give me the resources to deal calmly with the madness going on around you. Now, it's much harder to do that when we don't have corporate worship. It's a reminder to us to appreciate that hugely when we do get a chance to do that again. But I do want to say, you can do it. You can sit and tell God how good He is. Be a great practice. Pick up your Bible and read any part of it until you find something about God that's really great, and then express it in your own words to Him. Like Daniel, when you see God at work, don't just say thanks. He does get to that, but he just doesn't get there first. He says, what does that show me about God's character and how can I express that out to God? There's truth in Daniel's prayer, but we see him express it learning, express that learning as a wise person because he is a worshipper. And if you're constantly overwhelmed by this world and you don't know how to live and you're confused by choices and you feel stressed and worried and you feel unable to do the thing that Daniel does of taking the weight of sinful behaviour of other people on yourself, prayerfully prayerfully and bravely, one of the questions I want to ask about that is, how much time do you spend worshipping Jesus? Well, when Daniel's done his prayer of worship, there's still another seven verses before we find out the meaning of the dream. You're going to have to wait a whole week. We get the grand presentation of Daniel to interpret the dream. I'm just like, come on, Daniel. Tell him the answer to the dream. Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar quite a cheeky answer. So Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 26, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Remember, guard standing with the sword. Imagine the other uh, wise men were, you know, as they watched on, hopefully, wearing brown trousers. And Daniel gives a very cheeky answer, given that's the stakes. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. It's like, Daniel, (laughs) please tread carefully. But... Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And the mystery has been revealed to me, Daniel, not because I'm wiser than anyone else, but because the God in heaven wants to help you, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see how incredibly careful Daniel is here? He goes out of his way to make sure that God gets the credit rather than him. But then, interestingly, he doesn't feel like he has to jump into a full-on evangelistic explanation. Me, I would have said, uh, Yes, actually, I do know the answer. Here it is. Uh, Please, give me the floor. I would have just forgotten to talk about God, to be honest. There are other people who would have said... Yes, I do know. It was the real God who showed me the answer and you'd better repent and believe or you're going to go to hell. Daniel just says, I'm not taking the credit. But the reason I can tell you is the God in heaven who reveals mysteries has revealed it and he's revealed it because he wants good things for you and here it is. There is here... Wonderful wisdom. He knows God deserves the credit. So he says, please do not make a big fuss of me. But he also knows God puts his people in particular places at particular times to do good for other people. Even people who are embedded in very evil systems. There is a movie that one of our colleagues is a bit obsessed with called Hacksaw Ridge which is about um, a pacifist who was drafted to be in a war, in the Second World War. So he wouldn't pick up a weapon. He was a Christian, Seventh-day Adventist. He wouldn't pick up a weapon because of his Christian convictions. And he got gets totally sort of abused and told he's a card and everything. But he goes into the war and eventually wins all these medals for bravery because even though he wouldn't pick up a weapon, he would always go behind enemy lines, put himself in danger, to rescue other people who were fighting. And when they honoured him for that, he said, because of what I believe about God. Do you see? He took the weight of the sinful world on himself, and then when God helped him in that, he said, it was God who helped me. And he didn't sort of say, so you all need to be Christians. He gave the glory to God and did good for the people around him. There are people, not many in our church I'll be honest, who think the only way to honour God is to explain the gospel to people all the time. And you should explain the gospel wherever you can, but there's other ways to do good. There's others of us, and I think there's more of us like this in our church, whose Christian character is really evident in their workplace, or home, or university. And that's great. But we never mention that it's trusting Jesus that helps us to be patient. We're happy, unlike Daniel, to think we're the ones who are calm or patient or clever or capable. We don't say to our colleagues, oh, well, it was people praying that helped me face that situation. Or, I think God rules the world and I view myself totally in his hands to do what he wants. Or, it's good of you to thank me. and I'm a Christian and I think it's God who's helped me to do that. We don't do good things so we get to evangelise. No, not at all. We have a heart like Daniel that knows God is in charge. We worship him. That enables us to do good things. And then we do our best to give him the credit whenever we can to not steal his glory. That's not a tactic to make converts. It's a response of a worshipping heart. Well, as we finish... Here's a question for you. Is Daniel actually wise? And why do I ask that? Because Daniel himself says, uh, it's not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive. So why is he saying that if he's in the book as the model of a wise person? Well, I think that's because that's the wisest way to be. The way we will bring good to a mad world is to not get so good at everything that people respect us and think we're wise. The way we do good in a mad world is to always face life knowing our weakness and inability and always knowing what I need that I need God's help. To do what I can to love and serve other people and carry the weight of the things they get wrong and give God the credit when that works out because we think he really did do it. We are that humble person worshipping him. Living that way, not thinking I'm wise... That is wisdom. It's stupid to claim you're wise. It's wise to know you're stupid. And uh, when you know you're weak and stupid, you'll know you need God's help and you'll always give him the credit he deserves. Oh, there will be plenty of putting others first, of getting into risky situations, of bearing the weight of things that they get wrong. But that way you'll bring blessing to others, do good for them, and give glory to God. And that is wisdom. And so we're back where we started. Was it clever or stupid for Jesus to die, to take the punishment for everybody else? Well, like Daniel, it looked foolish for him to step in and take the weight of everybody else's mess. Like Daniel, he headed into a dark, chaotic world run by madmen and liars. Like Daniel, he gathered a group of praying friends. More than Daniel, he entrusted his life to God. And it's Jesus who did that. He brings this immense blessing to the world of bringing glory to God today as the gospel bears fruit all over the world. He's raised from the dead and he gives credit to that to his father. And as Jesus is that pattern, Daniel is the example of day-to-day what it means to reflect that wonderful Jesus model as we live in a mad world. Now, as we worship Jesus, we are formed like him and then we reflect him like Daniel in the place where he's put us. It feels crazy to carry the weight of others' sin. But if God helps us and we give God the glory, that in this mad world, that is wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we pray, please will you give us all the help we need to um, trust Jesus and worship him and so be formed to be like him. And help us, therefore, In our workplaces, our homes, our families, our universities. To be the people who make Daniel's decisions. To respond with wisdom and tact. To put ourselves in a place where we're carrying the weight of other people's sin. To get people around us praying for us in that. And how we pray, Lord, that as we do that, none of the glory would go to us. And all of it would go to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.